Blog Talk Radio.
is Charles Collingsworth at the White House in Washington, D.C. For many of you, this will be your first visit to this historical landmark. Our tour through these hallowed halls will be conducted by the First Lady. To Africa on the move. This is our first. Good evening. This is Charles Collingsworth at the White House. If your white great great grandfather killed.
killed my great-great-grandfather. And your white-great-grandfather sold my great-grandfather. And your white-grandfather raped my grandmother. And your father stole, cheated, lied, and robbed my father. What kind of a fool would I have to be to say, come, my friend, to the white daughter and son? Good evening, America. This is your president. Please listen carefully to the announcement I'm about to make. After careful consideration and research, Vice President Duke, Congress, and myself have concluded that black people have not advanced technologically. Their educational testing scores are on a rapid decline. The vast majority of them are on welfare and producing babies at a faster rate than they can support them. And we will not carry them anymore. We are left with no other choice but to put slavery back into effect. All blacks will report to the designated camps in their area to receive further orders. The only blacks excused will be those serving in the United States military and the police. Any blacks who do not cooperate will be terminated immediately. I repeat, slavery is back in effect. We are at war! That's what I told you. I know you heard what the president said, and if the nigga don't move, then he's dead. It's time for us to take the stand. Woman to woman and man to man. Blood pressure through your veins, you feel the fear. Who'd have thought that it could happen here? In the land of the free, home of the brave. The year's 95, you're a slave. Some go in shock when they first hear the news. Press play and then rewind and review. But the message is clear and it cuts just like the knife. You don't surrender, they take your life. And I remember some movies my mama used to show me. What's your name? Remember the times when they bought and they sold your free Feel the war, we're talking total annihilation. 
30th of April, 2023, we welcome you to Africa on the Move. On this particular date, the 30th of April, we would like to remind the masses of our people and humanity and give a salute to the Vietnamese masses for the defeat of U.S. imperialism in the year 1975. A salute on this day in 1975 to the Vietnamese masses as they defeated the U.S. imperialism. The almighty people, once you they are committed, organized, and conscious, there are no force on this earth that can stop them when the people are seeking their liberation. We welcome you again to Africa on the Moon, and we are honored to come to your homes this evening where we can speak truth to the powerful and the powerless. Our theme today is how genetic, how eugenics erased African history. And we can put a quotation mark in African history, the word erase. How eugenics erased African history. That's our theme today. Later on, we encourage you to come and join us. But meanwhile, like always, you know how we get started with our party. The first segment is program and tells what's going on in your world and community, followed by a discussion of our theme, how eugenics erased African history. So sit back, relax. Feel free to call in at 323-679-0841 and share your views and your perspectives on the various issues and topics that uh, we may discuss on today's program. I'm your host, Brother Africa, and like always, we go strive to go forward, Apple, backwards, Apple. We're going to sit in the seat, and we're going to take the heat, because as we define it, we're going to stand behind it. And with that said, I'll bring in my political panelists and analysts for today's program. First, we bring in Brother Haki, organizer for the African Awareness Association. We'd like to welcome him. To Africa on the move. Welcome, Brother Haki. <laughs> I'm Brother Africa. Thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamathi Mashoki, carrying on with African awareness. But let me tell you, Brother Africa, there's a very important question at some point we have to engage. That question is whether or not the African community in the U.S. constitutes a, U- a domestic colony. Uh, of course, there are many, of, many uh, among us take a position that we are, because we're U.S. citizens, that can never be the case. But when you certainly when you look into the history in terms of our, uh, you know, uh, our, our situation uh, as we go, as we as we know it in a society, there clearly certain kind of inconsistencies are uh, very very apparent. And to the extent that we talk about a colony, is it tends to uh, to reconcile itself with a lot of these inadequacies that we are confronted with in society. So the question in terms of whether or not the African community constitutes a colony inside the United States. It's something very, very interesting, you know, to, to have a discussion around. But in event, Brother Africa, uh, check this out. Now, Susan Rice, White, White House advisor, made an interesting claim in regard to economic inequality in the U.S. She stated the U.S. lost $16 trillion over two decades between years 2000 and 2020. As a result of anti-black racism, her conclusion, backed by a Citigroup report issued in 2020, stated <laughs> had the economic wealth gap narrowed, it would have contributed, quote, to $2.7 trillion in income contributing to consumption and investments, 
aiding access to higher education for black students, which in turn contributes to lifetime income, presumably over generations, between 90 to $113 billion, end quote. While the study paints potential for possibility, it obscures or conceals the historical role of institutions in the U.S. society and the strategic roles racial oppression plays in sustaining capitalism inherent inequality. The level of further math used to arrive at these statistics does not take into effect the psychological dimensions of a people battered by systematic oppression augmented by federal government with the express purpose of facilitating social, political conditions culminating in the subdued people in the short term with the long-term expectation such oppression will result in genocide against African people. For this reason alone, suggesting that a kind of benevolent kind of capitalism can solve the problem of racial oppression is not only farcical but absurd. Now, in reviewing the history of the U.S., certain conclusions are unavoidable. One such conclusion, involving the status of African people as citizens, persists to this day. Claims of African citizenship are often negated by U.S. history, function of its institutions, and indeed the U.S. Constitution that ratify Africans' right to vote every 20 years under Article 5 of the Constitution. Now, the historical dimensions are indeed relevant. De facto colonial status of Africans in the U.S. has its precedent in 1877 when Ruth President Roosevelt B. Hayes removed federal troops protecting newly free Africans after the Civil War. In removing the troops, Hayes, along with states' rights Democrats and Republicans, agreed Africans would not be free, and those political institutions that denied Africans freedom would be reasserted, even if not officially sanctioned. This meeting of the mind started Jim Crow laws, which legitimized racism, which supposedly ended in 1965, even though the socioeconomic statistics indicate they are very much present today here in the 21st century. There are those who take the view the systematic oppression of African people is not just a historical precedent, but the unique evolution of U.S. institutions in legitimizing racial oppression. In this context, understanding the longevity of racial oppression must be understood within the context of colonial structures and the benefits accrued by the ruling class and maintaining the black colony. In the, in, the, in the case of the African people, political economic systems that view African people as target for ex, ex, exportation can reasonably be argued that Africans in the U.S. are easily perceived as a colony within the U.S. The rationality of such beliefs lies in variables depicting what constitutes a colony. A colony <laughs> characteristics include politi uh, political legal domination, economic dependence, exploitation, and racial inequality are all quantifiable variables in the African community. Unlike the exploitation of the majority of poor whites, the exploitation is not calculated or embraced by U.S. by U.S. institutions. In other words, U.S. institutions do not openly embrace subjugation of whites based solely on skin color and certainly not the demonization of white skin. Conscientious methods employed to solidify exploitation of Africans include disparity in wages, uh, despite educational attainment, housing discrimination, low funding for education, mass incarceration, and more insidious and pervasive media narrative that depicts Africans as pariah or people worthy of hostile treatment. In creating a composite of these systematic ills inflicted on Africans, poverty is inevitable. Poverty as a political construct does not have to exist, but its existence necessary because of its debilitating and destructive features to ruling elites control. Poverty as a tool of destruction crime against the African community can achieve clandestinely or secretly what the ruling class can never reveal openly, and that's poverty effectiveness of debilitating impact or eliminating those deemed undesirable. For example, the Journal of American Medicine Association concluded poverty is the fourth largest mortality factor for death behind heart disease, 
cancer, and smoking. Significance of poverty is that it kills 10 times more people than homicide, 4.7 times more people than firearm deaths, four times more than suicide deaths, and three times more than drug overdoses. Given the socioeconomic cost of poverty, it would make sense for government to end poverty and end domestic, end domestic colony. A cost-benefit analysis reveals undermining socioeconomics of African people makes the economy poorer, progressively poorer. Monies that could be used to boost, consumer, boost consumerism by increasing levels of disposable income through jobs and higher wages will give people an opportunity to buy things. By eliminating certain demographics' ability to buy things, the disastrous impact on the economy ensues, often reaching proportions where the federal government itself is imperiled. Currently, the debt-to-GDP ratio of the U.S., a kind of credit score, hovers around 123%. Simply stated, 765% of the U.S. GDP is debt. This debt, in part, emanates from corporate policy with federal government support, refusal to use public funds and benefit to the U.S. population. Among those excluded from the economy, disproportionately so is the African community. Of course, negative economic impacts on Africans is seldom acknowledged. <laughs> Instead, Africans are portrayed as an F people whose problems are self-inflicted. This portrayal of Africans as lacking in motivation does serve as cover for capitalism folly, where its sanctioned policies account for its unraveling. Half of all U.S. businesses plan to eliminate and cut back jobs according to economic collapse. Reports indicate 2,150 corporate executives sold off their company's shares. Throughout the public sector, large corporations like Amazon, FedEx, Walmart, Lyft are, shift, are shredding jobs, not to mention the tech industry. At minimum, business plan to cut 320,000 jobs this quarter alone, a quarter courses over a three-month period. One would think that this grim statistic would encourage corporation policies to change course, but no. Drawing on an old strategy to empower corporations and conceal capitalism's decline, the African community, in conjunction with poor white community, will be used to carry out ruling class strategy. <coughs> and that strategy being Congress will propose cuts to social safety nets, specifically Medicare, which covers over 85 million poor women and children. The plan is twofold. One, to create justification for terminating large numbers of poor from the program, and second, uh, to compare participants to work 20 to 30 hours per day in exchange for participating in the Medicare program. Benefits to business from the plan ensures productivity gains and profits without the labor cost. More insidious, the perception of U.S. economic decline is a result of lazy, unmotivated people who don't want to work. When considering Congress estimations, the policy would result in $100 billion in revenue over a 10-year period. But, ironically, if you compare it to Senator uh, Sanders' plan, to tax the wealthy, this plan would incur savings or revenues of over $2.6 trillion over the same period. It can be deferred. The motivation of the ruling class has less to do with creating revenue, but, <coughs> but who benefits from revenues and the opposition to the unproductive or poor access to revenues under Sanders' plan. Projection of poor as scapegoats for capitalism systematic inequalities is an effective strategy but in order to make it a super strategy, Africans must be presented as the prime protagonists, the villains to be blamed for all U.S. ills. Such strategies have been used historically and very successfully <laughs> to the benefit, <laughs> the, the, the benefit of a black, the benefit of a black colony. Can putting a black face on Medicare cuts persuade the population of the benefits of such cuts? Of course it will. But a black face, on, put a black face on television, justify Medicare cuts is a great appeaser. Like Joseph Burrell, the EU commissioner, stated, 
European garden and jungle outside pretty much encapsulate the, the, the reality of the U.S. domestic African colony within the U.S. and the tangible reality thereof. And Brother Africa, I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. From Brother Haki, we now bring in Brother <coughs> Anthony, a member of the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC. We will now welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. And from Brother Anthony, we'll go to Brother Moses, who is a member of the D.C. Metro Coalition in solidarity with the Cuban Revolution. We'd like to welcome Brother Moses to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. Greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during the government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. We don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. I bear witness that women hold up half the sky. I'm for the Equal Rights Amendment, ERA, yes. And the struggle continues to be to unite the many, to defeat the few, the, the haves versus the have-nots, the poor versus the rich, the enlightened versus the ignorant. And we have to educate and transform society one person at a time. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And from Brother Moses, we go to our dear sister Eleanor, who is also a member of the D.C. Metro Coalition in solidarity of the Cuban Revolution. Sister Eleanor, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Good evening, Brother Africa, fellow analysts, and to our listening audience in the United States and abroad. My name is Eleanor Johnson, and I am a member of the coalition. Uh, we are planning an event on June 25th, 2023, in cooperation with numerous other groups that are in support of the Cuban Revolution. And uh, Brother Moses and myself will keep you informed. Thank you so much for this evening's show. And it is phenomenal that poverty is the fourth leading cause of death in the United States. Heart disease is number one, cancer is number two, and how did poverty get to be number four? That was very interesting what Brother Haiki was discussing. Thank you, Sister Eleanor, and to our listening audience, you're listening to Africa on the Moon. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take a rubber chair cultural break, and when we come back, we're going to 
invite you as well to join us as we discuss what's going on in your world and the community. We start out with Brother Hackey when we come back. This is Brother Africa, and Africa is on the move. Don't you go nowhere. We'll be right back.
U.S. society inability to recognize the fundamental tenets of human rights ensure the, deba- the debasement of human life whose worth is relegated to material possessions. This mindset is particularly problematic when representatives of government of various capacities demonstrate a lack of understanding of nuanced government policy and the devastation these policies have on human lives, specifically poor and working people. Recently, it was reported uh, Don Kami Nani, a former fire commissioner in San Francisco, engaged in insulting the homeless using bear spray from November 2021 to January 2023. The bear spray, a powerful irritant, can repel a 500-pound bear, was sprayed directly on the homeless without regard to medical implications or the catastrophic illness over a lifetime incurred as a result of being sprayed with such a powerful chemical. Kami Nani initially denied his involvement in insulting the homeless, but when presented with videotapes showing him spraying the homeless, he recanted his statement declaring, quote, I was there, but only to ask them to move away from my mother's house, uh, uh, preferably to relocate in the park, end quote. What is interesting is, despite the tape and Carl McNani's admission, the city of San Francisco has yet to indict him for assault, despite our claim evidence. Despite the fact he carried out eight attacks over a 13-month period was not sufficient for city officials to indict, suggest selective prosecution or an indifference to the lives of the homeless. Either way, by not prosecuting Carl McNani, the precedent being set divided the rule of law and it and with it assaulting the homeless uh, not viewed seriously, which in itself has very negative repercussions or ramifications for how the homeless view themselves. Now, this disparage application of law will soon be challenged, and the legitimate expression of law would again gain prominence as a tool of upholding civility. Civility only became an issue for city officials when Carmen Magnani was, was allegedly assaulted by a homeless man, Garrett Doty with an alleged metal rod. It was alleged the attack took place when Carmignani approached several homeless individuals presuming to ask them to move. Carmignani's recollection of events seemed self-serving and consistent with his previous interactions with the homeless. Carmignani's assertion he approached the homeless individuals without in, in, in trepidation belies a history in which he carried bear spray apparently so as to neutralize any potential threat while sending the, simultaneously the message the homeless are not welcome. In other words, Kamenani's perception of the homeless together in his mother's neighborhood were negative, with the expectation of bear spray would convey that sentiment, along with humiliation of spraying the homeless to confirm their lack of worth. Kamenani's recollection he <coughs> recollection he casually engaged the homeless connotes he did not feel threatened by the homeless, and that all humans, <coughs> the homeless as well, lives were in fact valued. At no time over the last 13 months. Did his behavior reflect or re- re- reflect respect or empathy for the homeless? He merely wanted the transient riffraff out of sight into the park, out of sight. Apparently, city officials concurred with Nani's assessment of the homeless because Mr. Doty was immediately arrested after the alleged attack on Carmen Nani. One could not help but think of <clears throat> think if the laws were applied equally by charging Carmen Nani for numerous assaults prior. The alleged assault on him would never have materialized. The fact that city chose to charge Mr. Doty not only underscores the subjective quality of pursuing legal charges, but it places poor defendants in, into attenuated circumstances where establishing innocence is extremely difficult. In a prosecutor's zeal to win in an adversarial system, justice is often sacrificed to secure a win for the state. 
Odds are Kaminani's role leading to the alleged assault will probably, <clears throat> will probably be ruled inadmissible, irrelevant to the charge of assault at hand uh, against Mr. Mr. Doty. The reality is the dual justice system, or well, forget that, the triad justice system, one for wealthy, one for the poor, one for Africans, is in fact is a fact of life in the U.S. In fact, the U.S. justice, justice system routinely is responsive to criticisms made by the wealthy to prevent crime. San Francisco justice system, like its counterparts throughout the U.S., are called upon to prevent crime when crime itself is a reflection of inequality, hopelessness, and desperation. Courts are not designed to address social issues of the state, and as such, are powerless to prevent crime. Mass incarceration of U.S. citizens starting in the 1970s have yet to prevent crime. Despite locking up the most people on the planet, crime statistics, particularly robberies and property crimes, quality of life crimes, which survival of is the main motivation for the crime, are among the highest in the world. When the wealthy of the San Val- excuse me, when San- Silicon Valley exhort the courts to stop crime in San Francisco, the homeless immediately become identifiable sub- uh, subjects or scapegoats to be showcased in the fight against crime. Mr. Doty's incarceration had more to do with politics than justice. Despite the strategic use of dragnets to ensure the poor, to ensnare the poor for rising crime, violent crime among the rich tends to evade detection and seldom discuss. Of San Francisco's most high-profile killings of a Silicon Valley employee, it turned out it was not the dreaded homeless, but a well-heeled sycophant of Silicon Valley who, who had conflict with the deceased. It is evident courts are tools of repression. <clears throat> their job is not to secure justice, but to ensure the poor maintain their place in society. If that be axiomatic, it behooves local communities, especially Africans, to establish community structures both to reduce crime and innovate methods of rehabilitation to mediate stress, which hampers emotional stability. Long-term focus has to be self-determination, something courts or the criminal justice system cannot provide. And I leave that that that, that message, you know, to, to the community. And I close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Hakeem. We will move now to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community? Okay, uh, a, 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 a couple of things. Uh, one, uh, May Day is going to be commemorated tomorrow in Cuba. Contrary to reports in the in the guarding and uh newspaper, it's just that it will uh it will not be on the same scale uh as it, as it usually has been in the past because of uh shortage of fuel. But there will be commemorations taking place uh throughout uh Cuba and uh it just won't be as elaborate as uh what 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 usually takes place in Havana but there will be a May Day commemorations uh tomorrow throughout Cuba also the All African People's Revolutionary Party GC is organizing its annual African Liberation Day Palestine Day commemoration throughout the month of May 2023. Uh, our theme this year is Pan-Africanism, Ways and Class Struggle in Africa and the Diaspora, 
fighting for one unified socialist Africa. For more information, please visit our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org for more information. Uh, visit uh, visit periodically because uh, uh, e- uh, events are subject to change. Thank you, Brother Anthony. And from Brother Anthony, we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community? Thank you, thank you. Uh, certainly we want to mention um, Harry Belafonte's passing. Uh, he was a pioneer in his field, uh, actor, uh, singer, um, revolutionary. And uh, we certainly, we will be missed. Um, this has been um, an interesting week. Um, I think I think that was that was the highlight of the week for me. Basically, uh, um, been a lot of stuff on WPFW concerning his career and uh, speeches and etc. Um, that's really what's been going on. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And from Brother Moses, going going to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, going on in your world and the community. Well, it's been um, a very busy week. Um, Of course, May Day being tomorrow and the National Workers' Day. But we also are reminded of the fact that uh, in the nation's capital, the mayor of the nation's capital is backing a housing program where they're going to take the uh, vacant office building since the, the new work from home has been such a success, folks working from home, and turning these uh, buildings into residential properties. And the mayor uh, is offering developers up to a billion dollars, depending on the size of the property. To redevelop these redevelop these properties, and she's exempting them from TOPA laws, which are laws that allow tenants to purchase their homes that support rent control and that sort the sort of thing. She's exempting exempting these downtown properties from those laws, and uh, this is a threat. To everyone's housing that includes homeowners as well as renters because what affects one invariably affects the other and uh, there's no such thing as a, uh, a neighborhood you know being uh, exempt and when you exempt one neighborhood potentially uh, all neighborhoods can be exempt. And uh, you saw that uh, tenants are still fighting, uh, fighting hard at the Woodner apartment building 
um, to preserve their rent control when they held a a noon to 2 o'clock yesterday on Saturday, April um, um, 28th, and today, April 29th, um, from noon to 2 p.m. throughout the city. Uh, That's the Widner Apartments. Um, Also, in the Shaw area, uh, in Congress Heights, on, Mac- uh, on Malcolm X, Martin Luther King uh, Boulevard, Malcolm X Boulevard, near the Congress Heights Metro and other areas, there were huge demonstrations and support of uh, putting caps on rent control with the inflation rate this year being 6.9 and the district having a clause that allows an extra 2%. Um, landlords are taking 8.9% increases on already extraordinary rents throughout the nation's capital. The mayor's response to this is that the District of Columbia will be a city of millionaires. Now, this is uh, 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 quite extraordinary because uh, working class people uh, need a place to live and even the millionaires need a place for them to live because they need uh, mailmen, grocery clerks, bus drivers, uh, waitresses, cooks, and the like. And uh, if they're not available in the city, when you have inclement weather, just expect everything to be closed. And uh, it seems that no one's really thinking ahead in terms of gentrification. Um, In over 40 years, while landlords and developers have been price gouging renters and received millions to build luxury housing, all the while claiming they are solving the affordable housing crisis, uh, a keen observer revealed uh, claims that they are solving the crises is really a cover-up to obtain government tax breaks and subsidies and giveaways of public land and 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 properties. Uh, this is, One minute to uh, no, wrap up your summary, okay? One minute. This is uh, really outrageous, and just as this is happening in the nation's capital, it is happening around the United States. And how? Thank you, Buster. Thank you, Buster. Sister. Um, panelists, we'll, I would like to engage you in. Just trying to get a better understanding of maybe something's wrong with this picture. I was reading an article the other week that often we talk about where's the role of the African universities. 
as it relates to the interests of our people. But I read the article, if I'm not mistaken, and someone can clarify with me, with me about the State Department, Department of Defense, is talking about creating a, 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 a discipline, a department at Howard University, where they're talking about um, giving something like, I think they said $30 billion to do and work for the Department of Defense. What do y'all make of that type of relationship? And why would the State Department want to enter into a contract with Howard University when they have all these other universities that are much more capable and set up to maybe do the necessary research that they'll be looking for? What are some of the pitfalls and dangers you must look at as relationship with developing this kind of relationship on these African universities? Brother Haki? <coughs> well, Brother Africa, I think just historically speaking, I think one thing we have to be mindful of, you know, uh, these, these, these African historical black colleges and universities historically got to start not so much to to teach students to critique the society in, which they, society in which they live in, but more in terms of creating a bourgeois class of individuals you know, will carry out the objectives and aims of the society, uh, irrespective of the kind of harm that's inflicted upon their own people. So they can have regard, I think, uh, how the universe is carrying on that tradition. I think it's not particularly concerned about the ramifications of doing what they're doing, because when you start talking about you know, uh, defense department, and you talk about the innovation of weaponry, that's essentially what you're talking about. Uh, you're talking about we're creating a precedent in which not only will, say, uh, uh, the majority culture be viewed as particularly, you know, hostile and uh, uh, inhumane. Now you create a narrative which says that you've got a large contingent of, quote-unquote, educated Africans who are also participating in destruction and harm, you know, under the guise, uh, under the guise of profitability. So I think that, you know, uh, the, the mere fact that, uh, you know, these, these universities, black college universities, never really took the time to really critique, uh, you know, uh, you know the, their role in society. I think playing ball with the Department of Defense is just, it's just a natural kind of occurrence. And I, I think that when we talk about the politics of it all, one of the things when you talk, talk about in terms of visibility, when you create the perception that these African people are, in fact, responsible for innovating technology which destroys uh, then, then essentially you, the, the people in positions of power can evade responsibility by simply pointing to the Africans at the university and saying, well, hey, it's their brain work. It's, it's a result of them. They created the technology, and so therefore we're just using it. But they're the real corporates. So I don't think that um, the, the bourgeois leadership at, these, at the Harvard University is particularly concerned about in terms of the political ramifications. I think what guides them is the pursuit of an almighty dollar. And it is unsaid, unfortunate, but I think it comes down to profitability, and is, and is that clear, Brother Africa? Ati, Brother Anthony, your take, Brother Anthony. We're talking about the role of intelligence here. In this case, we're talking about African intelligence here and how one mind will be used to undermine their own people's interests and the rest of the world. What's your, what, what's your take on this relationship? And one of the things people got to also realize, when you bring large sums of money to an institution, also is a form in which you can control and dictate the institution. Because with this money also can come a change in the staff, different types of staff. I mean, all kinds of things can take place. So also this is another form of 
a former outright beginning to dominate the so-called African institutions. Your take, Brother Anthony. I, I agree with you. Uh, it, it, it is definitely that. And uh, and also uh, let's see. And also, I think uh, I think I think this is another case in which the interest of Howard's administration is at odds with the interests of the masses of students that uh, uh, that uh, that go there. Uh, the uh, the administration, uh, uh, you know, uh, looks at it from uh, uh, from uh, from its uh, 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 bottom bottom line and the prestige that it gives it that it gives Howard. But uh, let's see. But it uh, it, it is a form of uh, of uh, influence in the in the uh, in the Howard's curriculum. And also, uh, and also, it uh, it also serves. Uh, it doesn't serve a constructive purpose for the uh, uh, for the uh, African community at large. And uh, but uh, but Howard has a history of making these types of decisions, unfortunately. And uh, you know and. Um, uh you know howard is uh, I, I think is the first uh hbcu to get this sort of funding from the department of defense there are other universities that get it but i think it's the first hbcu to to get this sort of funding so Saldo, your your projection or your um your you you um prognosticating um, perspectives of why they target how versus other institutions, just out of Now, why is it, what is this defense contract that is being offered, Howard? Repeat that again, my sister. What, what, you said it's a defense contract being offered to Howard University? Yes, the Department of Defense entered into a contractual relationship with Howard to work for them, to do some work for them. I find that relationship real uh, problematic. Do you have a problem with that? Yes, I find it problematic uh, also. And what is it and what departments are they working with? I think it, it is quite problematic especially with gentrification in the district and uh, many residents in that uh, Howard University neighborhood alleging there's no need uh, for an HBU. And now we have an HBU engaged in defense department work. One right now, we need to be engaged in environmental uh, justice and protecting planet Earth. I can't imagine what Howard University would be involved in. And when you see in the last few years, uh, Howard University um, selling so much of this property, and rather than controlling a portion of the property and selling a portion of the property, 
it appears they've been just outright selling the property. I lived in the district in what once was a Howard University neighborhood and a building that maybe three years ago was a Howard dorm. Now it's a, quote, luxury apartment. Rather than getting involved in defense uh, contracts, Howard should have been uh, getting involved with uh, financial lawyers from the National Lawyers Association and protecting its interest in its property rather than selling its property and becoming a, uh, engaged in, in defense. Uh, it, it's something wrong with that, and uh, I don't think it'll fare well for uh, the students, especially when you see the author of the 1619 uh, um, project is a professor at Howard, and I think it's really a, a way, as uh, Brother Anthony and Brother Haiki said, of redirecting the politics and 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 uh, uh, philosophy of Howard University and unfortunate. I don't know anything about this defense contract, and I'm really not able to speak on it. Uh, other than to say that just by the fact that it is a part of the a defense project, that that is a a failure for Howard University. We're all familiar with the Halliburtons. We've seen what happened with the Iraqi invasion and George W. Bush and uh, how people around the world and around the country were opposing the Iraqi war. We've seen the failures in Afghanistan. Why would anyone on how its board of trustees enter in, or whomever is responsible enter into such a contract. It doesn't, it doesn't gel right with the goals of the university and the goals of HBUs and African American institutions, or as we say, African institutions in the United States. Thank you for that correction, Sister Eleanor. We can move forward with Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your thoughts on this relationship? Yes, um, I have a limited understanding of what this project is going to be about. Um, but, you know, the Defense Department is definitely on the decline in terms of world history and uh, what what we need to do in terms of the environment and uh redistribution of wealth and so you know this is a uh uh not a good organization to be involved with at this point in history i mean you know it's only decadent uh and uh it's, it's not progressive at all uh and i don't i don't see why what what the reasoning is i guess Money is, is the root of all evil. They tell me uh, people will do anything, I guess, you know, compromise themselves if they get too motivated by money. 
And so we have to keep our politics in command and serve the people. And Howard University um, needs to question its, 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 its intent in this, in this situation. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses and panelists. I would like to get your thoughts on this phenomenon that was shared with me recently, and I'm just curious in terms of trying to think about the implication of this particular phenomenon. A friend just recently shared with me that they were reading some articles on Amazon and companies that have large manufacturing base where people order products from, where in the year 2024-25 that you will not have no money to purchase these items. Everything be done through a card. Everything be digital. But the but the catch is, in order to get the merchandise, these companies like Amazon will run your card and your shipping thing through the State Department, and they will have the final approval on whether or not if they should sell you those products. Wow. That take place. What is the implication of that, Brother Haki? Sound like slavery is an effect today, Brother Haki. You know, Brother Africa. You know, uh, one of the things. You know, uh, when when we talk about the the implications of Big Brother, and you know, we, when we we talk about that repeatedly on Africa and the Move, and we try to get people to understand that when we talk about turning the the pervasive, pervasive overwhelming. Um, Surveillance employed by the U.S. government is not in the interest of humanity. We want people to understand that that fully. But in understanding that clearly, uh, you know, uh, one of the intents in terms, in terms of the government is to instill a certain amount of fear in people. So fear, people feel like, you know, everything they do is monitored. So when you talk about the fact that, uh, the, you know, that uh, these, these agencies uh, are going to determine you know, after they, after they run your information to the State Department, determine what what products you can buy and can't buy. I think it, it has a sort of a, a chilling in, chilling impact. You know, in other words, uh, the, the whole point in terms of you know consumerism, the whole point in terms of buying buying, is because those things bring some amount of comfort, some amount of joy to you. So you purchase for that reason. So well, imagine the situation now where they're saying that in order for you to get those things that make you comfortable, make you feel good, you know. We're going to run your information through the State Department. That means that people out there who are cognizant of that reality are going to contort or change their behavior in terms of what they say, how they say, who they interact with, or who they who they who they who they engage in discourse with, and so forth and so on. But that's precisely part of the plan. If you get people afraid of one another, if you get people hesitant to talk to one another, then the state wins. So the very is a very uh, very dangerous is a very precarious situation that humanity finds itself in the society. And when you talk about the fact that money, won't be, you have to use a card in order to do it, what does that say in terms of individual freedoms? For a society that says that it's all about individual freedoms, particularly these so-called conservatives, or talk, always constantly talk about individual freedom, to say that you can only make purchases using cards, then that automatically eliminates a large number of people who may not have access to cards. Certainly those individuals who have access to those cards who are indigent, or pay interest, exorbitant interest rates, which means that ensures, you know, that their poverty actually increases. And so, so clearly, when you look at this, this, this plan in terms of, you know, providing information to the State Department, clearly, you know, it, 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 no matter how you view it, 
I mean, is, is the elements of it all is very, very counterproductive and very, very destructive, you know, to what we know as democracy. Uh, so, Brother Africa, I, I think that, you know, one of the things, you know, um, understanding this is the nature of the beast, I think I employ people to understand, despite these efforts in terms of intimidation or coercion or, 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 or tacit fear, uh, that we understand, you know, that we don't really have any recourse in the context of, you know, uh, uh, modern modern society, because these people in positions of power are adamant that they can maintain control at all costs, and because they're cognizant of the fact that capitalism is in decline, they become much more vicious, much more ruthless, and they do any and everything in terms of, you know, pacifying or intimidating the masses of people in society. So people in and of themselves have to decide, you know, if they're going to be intimidated or despite the, the machinations of the government, are going to take a stand in terms of fighting for that which is right, that which is humane, or that which is proper. Uh, so clearly, Brother Africa, this is part of a broader strategy in terms of coercing, or coercing the, the population to instill a level of fear in the population in terms of ensuring that ruling class carry out you know, all kind of uh, objectives, uh, mainly the, the main objective, of course, is uh, maintaining power and control at all costs. And I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Anthony, definitely this situation highlights this whole question of dependency, control, and um, this lack of freedom that people will have. Your response to this phenomenon, Brother Anthony? Yeah, I concur with all the points Haki made, and I would add that. that it, it it does inculcate fear and also and it's also a means of control. I mean uh I mean uh you know for the uh you y- you know having uh having uh you know to, to, to use a, a, a card in order to make a purchase uh sounds 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 that, that uh, very totalitarian to me, and uh, and uh, and that is what this society is moving towards, as uh, as uh, you know as uh, you know uh, uh, capitalism advances, and uh, and in order for the bourgeoisie to stay in power, they resort to methods of uh, uh, of uh, controlling people's uh, actions and thoughts. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Sister Eleanor, your take. Well, um, one of the things the State Department has is they have, um, for example, they have an African death, a European death, and those deaths are broken down, and they um, keep List in theory to help uh, 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 business and um, business venturers to know what's needed by certain countries, uh, what import items are needed to be imported to Africa. Also, with the new legislation where you're able to export goods out of Africa without tariffs, what goods are available for export. So on the surface, with everyone, so many people buying through Amazon and buying online, they don't realize that they're contributing towards 
to totalitarianism and they're wiping out individual proprietors because right now Amazon, for example, has so many contracts with the direct uh, manufacturers or suppliers of certain goods and items. And now they're going to become the go-between shipping abroad and and uh, uh, between the United States and shipping abroad. That can be stopped right now by persons um, making sure that they're aware of what's needed and they are in contact with the State Department and looking at what goods and supplies are needed for import as well as what's available for export and begin to work directly with the manufacturers of those goods and items and to take advantage of the uh, the opportunity to ship themselves since there's been a release on these carrots instead of doing everything online. We ourselves as consumers are contributing to this authoritarianism where someone is keeping track of everything you're doing because you're whipping your card open. And I also, whipping your card out and just laying it down and purchasing and and that sort of thing. And as the analyst said, there is also a group of people who do not have access to this uh, line of credit. So they will find themselves paying more and being penalized for just not uh, having access to uh, credit cards and online shopping. And we still are ignoring, you know, there's a reality that there's a digital divide in this country. And uh, uh, President Biden, the President of the United States, was trying to close that digital divide in rural areas and certain places. But how has uh, the United States, States tried to close that digital divide in major cities such as New York City, uh, the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and other cities throughout the country. And uh, we seem to be moving backwards where we're allowing, as a republic, for the states to have so much control over the individual just manufacturing and sales in that individual state that it threatens people. You see DeSantos in Florida, you see Abbott in Texas, and uh, so many civil liberties are being usurped. And you see it with Santos, for example, where he's attacking Mickey Mouse, and two years ago, talked about how he was going to do it and how they were going to regret it for actions they had taken in supporting the rights of their workers. 
and um, staying out one of the minute, market. One minute, Sister Wrap up your presentation. You've got one minute. Uh, well, the point is, is that the State Department, once again, does keep lists of what's needed to be exported, imported from every continent and every country. But now it sounds like uh, Amazon is becoming aware of it and wants to take over and become a bridge for international uh, export. And I would say to everyone, don't get involved in that, that that is fostering authoritarianism, as the other analyst said. Thank you, my sister, Brother Moses. We're going to give you the last word on this particular issue. You know, one of the things when big business begin to dictate to government, that's what aspects of a, a, a society they say go on fascism. But your response to that phenomenon, Brother Moses, your take. Right. Well, the the new the new issue, I guess, is the State Department is becoming involved with Amazon and, and screening its uh, clients, et cetera. Um, because the card, the card issue, uh, I don't even know if you can do get, get anything from Amazon without some kind of credit card at this point. I mean, it's online, and uh, I, I think it's pretty. Only, that's the only practical way you can do it. Uh, but the State Department uh, uh, screening, it's it's uh, that's a new precedent, and uh, it's very very. Uh, cautious and uh uh dangerous to the consumer ultimately uh 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 the US government is not to be trusted uh uh if we haven't learned that yet I don't know when we're gonna learn it for COINTEL Pro and all the different repressions uh capitalism and the ruling class running wild and uh so we, we need a revolution then and uh, you know, but this this Amazon State Department thing is the problem. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Thank you, panelists, for your perspectives on what's going on in this world and your world and the community. We're gonna take a rubber strap culture break, and when we come back, we're gonna address our theme today: how eugenics erased African history. You, our listening audience, we invite you to call in and share with us any thoughts that you have heard today and on the subject that we get ready to engage in by dialing 323-679-0841. Remember, African on the Move is a weekly program under the banner of the African Awareness Association. You can join us every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. If you want to share some love, with this program, you can do that as well by making your donation to either you can sell it at dollar sign, capital L, small e, small e, small c, small r, small o, small b, or you can, or you can, um, cash, I mean, you can cash out it at capital L, dollar sign, capital L, small e, small e. Small C, small R, small O, small B, or you can just sell it to African Awareness Association 2 at gmail.com. We thank you for your support and contribution, and like always, 
We use the resources to help to continue to work, to help help push our people forward down the road of liberation and unification. This is Africa on the Move, so let's go to our cultural break and when we come back, we will discuss how eugenics erase African history. You are watching Cold Fusion TV. A simple kind of drama, rhyme the fighting blind eyes open when the rock's smoking from the writing. Gentle giant shining armor bomb the track, soft back that we lace and then we put it on wax like that. Welcome to another. I've seen you in the market, I've seen you in the street, and at your political convention. Talking of your crusades, talking of your nation, and other things too terrible to mention. And you proclaim your Christianity, you proclaim your love of God, you talk of apple pie and mine. I've just got one question, can I want an answer? Tell me, who would Jesus bomb? Maybe Jesus would bomb the Syrians, cause they're not Jews like him. Drive an M1 tank and he would shoot Saddam. Who would Jesus bomb? Yes, I've seen you on the TV and on the battleship. I've seen you in the house on the hill. I've heard you talking about making the world safer and about all the men you have to kill. And you speak so glibly about your civilization and how you have the moral higher ground. While halfway around the world, your explosives smash the buildings, you could only hear the sound. But maybe Jesus would sell landmines and turn on his electric chair. For his enemies in the lands way over there Maybe Jesus would have flown the plane That killed the kids in Vietnam Who would Jesus bomb? You shout with confidence as you praise the Lord And you talk about this God you know so well You talk of Armageddon and your final victory When all the evil forces go to hell Well, you'd best hope you've chosen wisely On the right side of the Lord And when you die, your conscience, it is clear You'd best hope your atom bombs Are better than the sword At the time when your reckoning is here I don't think Jesus would send gunships into Bethlehem Or jets to raise the towns of Timorese I don't think Jesus would lend money to dictators Or drive those SUVs I don't think Jesus would ever have dropped A single ounce of napalm Who would Jesus bomb? 
And to the buffalo who once ruled a plain Like the vultures circling beneath the dark clouds Looking for the rain Looking for the rain Just like the city that stagger on the coastline In a nation that just can't stand much more Like the forest buried beneath the highway Never had a chance to grow Never had a chance to grow And now it's winter Winter in America Yes, and all of the hills Have been killed Sent away In America And ain't nobody fighting Cause nobody knows what to say Save your soul Lord knows from winter in America The Constitution A noble piece of paper with free society the struggle but they died in vain and now democracy is a ragtime on the corner hoping for some rain it's looking like he's hoping hoping for some rain and I see the robbers first in barren treetops Watching last ditch races Marching across the floor But just like the peace behind That vanished in our dreams Never had a chance to grow Never had a chance to grow And now it's winter in America and all of the hillers have been killed or betrayed yeah but the people know the people know it's winter Lord knows it's winter in America
it's a winner Winter in America And all of the healers Done been killed Sit away Not only that winter in America, there's hell in America. We welcome you back to Africa on the Moon and Panelists. I'm just curious in terms of if Jesus were here today, when we laid out this break, who would he bomb? Brother Haki, who would Jesus bomb if he was here today? <laughs> who, would you, who would Jesus bomb? Uh, that's, a, that's a tough one, brother. Uh, that's a very tough one to answer. Uh, my 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 instinct would tell me that uh, he would decline to bomb anybody. I think he would recognize the in, inherent injustices of, uh, of the capitalist system. I think he would try to organize people around standing up against the capitalist system. I don't think he would replicate uh, you know these hostilities or these evils. Uh, as, as, as a means, as a methodology, you know, um, to stop those transgressors who continually, you know, humiliate, demean, to kill, and destroy uh, needless human beings throughout the planet. So I think uh, Jesus, in the traditional sense, would be a pacifist. I, 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 you know, <laughs> but being a pacifist doesn't mean that you're inactive. I mean, you can fight this. Martin Luther King is a pacifist. Uh, Brother Reverend Barber is a pacifist. A pac- um, uh, uh, you know, um, you know. Uh, so you can be you can you can be you know uh, you can be assertive, but actually you know utilizing um, in violence in terms of achieving an end. Now I'm not saying, of course, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that in, that at some point that violence may not be inevitable. Certainly, when it comes to defending oneself, I mean, only a fool would insist, you know, that if you're being attacked, to tell that person, listen, turn the other cheek. No, 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 you can't you can't do that. So there are times in which violence are inevitable, uh, but I think that. You know, being a pacifist can can be instrumental in terms of turning the tides. I mean, one of the things when we talk about the role of the Christian nationalists in society, if we had more pacifists inside those those institutions uh, to sort of redirect a lot of this confusion existing in the Catholic in the Christian Church, uh, I think it would be pretty. I think it'd be monumental in terms of preventing, you know, uh, possible upheavals uh, that are surely going to take place. You know, as capitalism continues to decline. So I think Jesus would be a pacifist in the traditional sense, and, you know, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with being a pacifist, providing that you understand what the issues are and be in a position to clarify those issues and adamant and you stand, you know, that you work to undermine, you know, uh, the powers that be, uh, those powers that systematically disadvantage humanity, and I'm close with that. Brother Anthony, the son raised a million-dollar question. If Jesus was here today, who would he bomb? What you think about that? Who would he bomb? Brother Anthony? Who would he? Yes, Jesus, yes. That's the question okay. that the sign uh, means. I'm just curious would, to Actually, he would be, uh, uh, he would probably uh, pursue pacifism. That does not mean that uh uh, that 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 he would not be active in the struggle. I think he would uh, he he would be fighting against uh, capitalism and exploitation, 
as as and and uh you know the exploitation of one human being by another as he did uh, 2000 years ago when he was here and uh and uh just because uh you're a pacifist does not necessarily mean that uh you know that you're nonviolent all the time as a matter of fact, uh, as a matter of fact, when he uh, when, when when he got when, when, uh, he 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 violently uh, got the money changers out of out of his father's temple. So you know there are cases uh, in which uh, you know even uh, even the most peaceful have to fight. Thank you, Brother Anthony. We're going with Brother Moses, the man who can pot in the water. Brother Moses, if Jesus was here today, who would he bomb? That's a million-dollar question that the song just raised. Your response? Well, Jesus wouldn't be bombing anyone. Uh, he would be organizing, uh, converting people to the path of righteousness as he saw it in general justice, fair play, and love for one another. Uh, he was anti-Zionist, anti-sexist, and uh, anti-capitalist. And uh, so, you know, the source of these bombings and wars is capitalism and and uh, the desire to control the world and to reap the, the resources of the world by a few people who have control. And Jesus would be opposed to that. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Sister Eleanor, two minutes or less, give me a response to this question from the song. If Jesus was here today, who would he bomb? Sister Eleanor. If Jesus were here today, what? I didn't hear the end of the question. Who would he bomb? Who would he, um, I don't think he would bomb anyone. I don't think the Nazarene would bomb anyone. Um, it's uh, the imperialists that are bombing and spreading destruction, uh, entering in war after war, from from Iraq to from Vietnam to Iraq and Somalia with the drone strikes. That's the business of the U.S. And, and uh, now the uh, what many call the proxy war with the Ukraine and uh, with Russia, vis-a-vis the Ukraine. So I don't think Jesus would bomb anyone, and uh, I uh, I don't think he would be um, shipping his goods abroad vis-a-vis. Uh, Amazon and these other uh, super capitalists either. Thank you, Sister Noah and Penis. Let's get down to business for today's theme, which is how eugenics erase African history. Now, for our listening audience, you know, we would like to just share with you that if you get a chance, and we'd like to give a prop and a respect to 
This particular documentary that can be found on YouTube, the brother did an excellent job in raising many contradictions and was a good teachable moment to try to get a better understanding of some of the uh, issues and institutions and people who have played a role in the past that is impacting, impacting our present and definitely going to affect our future in terms of understanding the world better how things came to be, and all things that you see may not be be, be based upon truth. So it's a real interesting documentary uh, titled How Eugenics Erased African History. And we want to take a few minutes and highlight this particular docu- documentary and use it as a teachable moment. Now, one of the things or some of the things, the ideas that came from this documentary, and I'm going to turn this over to my panelists because I'd like to know um, – have their um, insight on, on their take on this documentary was that one of the things he raised the issue of the status of white, what that really means, the code aspect of the color white, symbolized more of some sense of status. He talked about this whole question of white supremacy as an offspring or a child of eugenics. He talked about how um, those who, are, who, who practice the concept of eugenics uh, they use war against the weak. And there was an interesting book called War Against the Weak that was created by Edwin Black. You should maybe take a chance and check it out. And this whole question of how European history was whitewashed, and it continues today. One of the questions was raised, what is it like to be white in America? And what point did America life changes? And you talk about the importance or the reconstruction period, or the time period 1865 to 1877, particularly as it relates to the intensification and rationalization for the use of eugenics. Now, the fundamental question is how and why history was rewritten. I'll start right there, and I'll turn my mic over to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, as you critique this documentary, How Eugenics Erased African History, what lessons can we learn from that, Brother Haki? Well, Brother Africa, you you uh, you're asking a whole lot. I'm, I could give a dissertation over 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 three hours talking about this. But in any event, uh, I'll try to make it very very narrow. Um, you know, one of the things we have to start with, we have to discount this notion of race. A race is something that doesn't objectively exist. Race is something that was created in the 15th century of Europe uh, for the sole purpose in terms of justifying slavery. Race has no biological uh, significance whatsoever. There's no such thing as a race. As a matter of fact. The world never knew anything about a race until the 15th, 15th century uh, A.D., in which the West stopped propagating, you know, false signs, you know, under 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 guys that, you know, the signs uh, pretty much uh, epitomizes the uh, the conditions of human beings throughout the planet. But of course, it was all lies. It was strategically done specifically to promote these lies, so as to promote white supremacy for the express purpose of justifying enslaving of people of color throughout the world. There's an interesting book that people should read called um, uh, Historians Against History by G.W. Nobles. And his history entails the, 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 um, the covenant that was grieved by Western nations in terms of disguising or di- dismissing or, 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 or just eliminating African history. And the whole purpose is to create this paradox that says that you know, the only history that was relevant was Western history. And in fact, that only Western history contributed to, 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 to the advent of humanity that all other histories are irrelevant, and so therefore the people are inferior, and so therefore they should be treated as such. 
So that book is called Historians Against History by G.W. Nobles. But having said that, one of the things that, you know, you got to be interested in, and I think it's important when we talk about particularly, um, uh, talk about uh, ancient, uh, ancient, uh, Af- you know, ancient African history, one of the things we have to be very, very clear about. One of the things that, one of the tactics that the West has been using is that historically they've always started talking about Western history as though it, 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 its origin lies in ancient Egypt or Kemet. Uh, but the bottom line is that when you talk about the history of Africa, the bottom line is you can't talk about starting with Egypt. You have to go to the Nile River Valley cultures in terms of who actually brought the cultures into Egypt to make Egypt what it was. And so when these people say that uh, you know these, these traditional ancient Egyptians weren't, weren't black or weren't Sub-Saharan Africans, it's, it's, it's erroneous. It's, it's very, very false. Uh, in fact, uh, one one of the things is that uh, you know there was the philosopher and I forgot his name. He was uh, he was uh, Ethiopian. I'm not. He's Egyptian, and he made a statement. And he said that you know he admitted we came from the beginning of the Nile, where God happy dwells at the foothills of the mountain of the of, of the moon. He that was a quote, a direct quote, and he was talking about the Africa uh, presence in, in Kemet in terms of you know everything we do and everything we are. Is of African people, and he wasn't talking about anybody else. He would talk about Sub-Saharan African people. He was talking about very dark people in terms of their presence, you know, in Kemet, in Kemet, Africa. I think also one of the things that we we have to take in mind is that when we talk about some of the nuances and some of the, some of the trickery employed by those in positions of power in the West to deceive people, keep in mind when I talk about you know, the origin of you know origin of when we talk about origin of African history, we talk about Nubia or Kemet in particular. Keep in mind that history goes all the way back to 3100 BC, BCE, and keep in mind African. And keep in mind Western Western history doesn't deal with Egypt's Egypt's con- uh, contributions to humanity until 18th century dynasty, which is roughly 1500 BCE. And so, therefore, there was so they, what they made was a conscientious choice to make sure to up to to obfuscate or just dismiss all that history that preceded. Uh, uh, that preceded uh, the, 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 the evolution of the, of the Kemet Empire, or what we call today as Egypt. And so that was part of a strategy, and they did that specifically. And in fact, that process continues today. As a matter of fact, recently, uh, as recently as back in 96, they had a big debate uh, between Dr. John Henry Clark and Murray Lefowitz. And of course, Murray Lefowitz wrote a book called Not Out of Africa. Whole whole point was she was, she was, a, she was financed by conservative right-wing think tanks. Her whole, whole premise was to dismiss African contributions to Egypt and ultimately African contributions to the evolution of the West. So she didn't she want so her job was to sort of discredit that, but she didn't do a very good job because on that panel was not only Dr. John Henry Clark, but also Martin Burnell who wrote Black Athenia. And so they were able to clearly show that what Mary Lefowitz had to say was disingenuous and, and it was very, very political. So that was very, very interesting. But also, I think, Brother Africa, I think, you know, one of the things, you know, when we talk about uh, the, the Egyptian mystery system, I think this is key. Uh, because one thing Africans did historically, and we talk about the Nile River cultures. I'm not talking about Kemet. I'm talking about the Nile River Valley, Nile River cultures. You know, I'm talking about Nile River cultures. I'm talking about places like Sudan, Egypt, Ethiopia, I'm sorry, Sudan, Ethiopia, Nigeria, Cuba. Not, not Nigeria. Sudan, e- not Ethiopia, Cuba. Not Cuba. Damn, I'm I'm in another world here. But when I talk about the Nile River cultures, I'm talking about Sudan, Ethiopia, uh, and Manavatapa, which we currently we call Namibia. And uh, we talk about their contributions in terms of uh, 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 their contributions to the, the mystery system. It's very interesting because the mystery system incorporates not only the science but the spirituality too. 
So as in the West, there seems to be this distinction between the spirituality and the science, whereas in traditional uh, African thought systems, they're, they're one and the same. In fact, one of the things, the reason why many 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 uh, people have 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 indicated the reason why Africa was able to innovate, you know, uh, you know, uh, math and science, uh, was because of the terms of this correlation between the the the, the religious and the, and the scientific. And so as a consequence, and, and you know, and, and, and you know, with the Nile River Valley in terms of its contributions, when we talk about a, a squared plus b squared equals c squared, or the Pythagorean theory, we understand it comes from Africa. It, rich, it originated prior to the evolution of Egypt in terms of, as, as as a power. And so this is important that we understand, we understand this. Also, I think that one of the things is that you know, when we talk about in terms of the, the the origin of people, and this is key because one of the things we have to begin to discuss, and this is important about Africa. We have to make people understand that when you talk about the origin of human beings, there's only one place in the world where they come from. They all, all people come from Africa. There are seven distinct genetic traits out of Africa in which people throughout the world inhabit. That's all, Africa is the only place in the world where genetic traits are found. And so when, so, so when you have Muslims in the North, North Africa talk about they're not Africans, it's because not only do they not understand genetics, but they don't even understand the history. And particularly when you start talking about Arabs upset about the fact that when uh, Calvin Hunt talked about the fact that traditional Egyptians or different Kemites, Kemites were, were, were dark-skinned Africans, he was absolutely correct. Because if you talk about Arabs, they did not even invade Egypt until like 632 A.D. So, so, so the difference between, uh, so the difference between you know, uh, 3100 3, B.C. or 2680 B.C. and 632 B.C. is a vast difference. And so those Africans who, who think that, in fact, those are Africans in North Africa who think that, in fact, being North African or Muslim somehow makes them distinguished or separate from Africans and Sub-Saharan Africa is farcical. It's laughable. But it clearly is, is, is a lack of understanding science. It's a lack of understanding history. Also, I should add, just in terms of the importance in terms of understanding we're one people, we're one humanity. When we talk about in South Africa, it's very, very interesting because many people, many, many uh, uh, people believe that the, 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 the song people, the Koi song out of South Africa are the oldest people on the planet. That's interesting because it's sort of, it's been demonstrated that the Koi song actually inhabited what we currently call China and, and those Asian nations. And so it's very, very interesting to know. So, we, again, we talk about the origin of human beings, you know, migrating from, from Africa to different parts of the world. The phenotype or the genotype of the people doesn't change. The genetic makeup of the people doesn't change. What changes is the phenotype, the physical makeup of the people. But genetically, we're all one people. That's no such thing as a race. But Western nations have been very good in terms of obscuring this reality. In part, I think it's important we point this out, that in terms of obscuring this reality, we have to understand that one of the things they did was the role of education. So in Egypt, we talk about the, 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 the great library of, of Alexandria, Egypt. The bottom line is that the problem is that there's some real problems in terms of the, the, the origin or, the, or the, these, these are just giant uh, library acts that exist. There were a lot of small library stations throughout Egypt in terms of providing information. And what happened was that, uh, you, know, uh, you know, these small libraries were actually instrumental in terms of purveying information, you know, throughout, not just through, through Kemet, but throughout that whole region, the Nile River region and other regions of the world. And, in fact, so what happens is that, you know, by creating that the perception, in fact, that this giant library existed, information could conveniently be destroyed, and you could attribute to the fact that this, this, this giant uh, library in Alexandria uh, Kemet went up in flames, so therefore all the information that was lost, you know, uh, 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 is unfortunate, but it's nothing we can do. 
But keep in mind, but just in terms of information, I conclude with this because it's important. I know other people got to speak. It's important we understand we talk about science. You know, earlier I alluded to the fact that there's a correlation in terms of African traditional thought between science and theology. Well, keep in mind when we talk about the role of, of, role of, uh, role of science, uh, not only we talk about mathematically, but we talk about in terms of medical science. The Papers Epers, okay, was those strolls which, which told people how to perform how to perform brain surgery, back surgery, neck surgery, stomach surgery, all of those surgeries that we say are modern today existed in the millennium, long, long time ago. But we don't talk about that because people in positions of power had the power to make sure that certain discussions never take place. And this is what we have to say. So we have to teach our children. We have to take upon ourselves to make sure our children understand the, the reality in terms, of, in terms of what's going on. So, uh, and, and, and finally, Brother Africa, I'll, I'll simply say that, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, one of the things, there's a big controversy here lately in terms of Cleopatra being black. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a sister out of Iran, uh, Tina Garavi, uh, and there's a movie produced by Gita. Supposedly, some Egyptians who are upset that because uh, the Queen Cleopatra was considered as, a, as an African woman. And I find that very, very interesting. Uh, again, as I alluded to earlier, Arab conquerors didn't reach Egypt until like 632 B.C. That was long after used, um, um, Egypt's decline in the 18th century, or roughly 1500 B.C.E. So this notion that, that Cleopatra couldn't be an African woman is just a, a farcical, it's absurd, but again, it speaks to the kind of ignorance, the kind of uh, contempt for African people based upon not understanding history or not wanting or, 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 or internalizing racism or internalizing you know, Western racism. And with that, Brother Africa, I close so other people can speak. Thank you, Brother Haki, to Brother Afti. One of the fundamental questions from how eugenics erased African history is the question of how and why history was rewritten. From your perspective, Brother Afti, what do you take from this documentary and turn this into a teachable moment? Brother Anthony, the mic is yours. Thanks. Um, first of all, I want to uh, uh, start with uh, eugenics. Eugenics is uh, is a concept uh, that was uh, that was invented uh, d- 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 during the d- during the nineteenth century in. in, 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 in in, in Europe, it was uh, it, it was it was a European that coined the term eugenics, and it and it meant uh, you know uh, you know uh, uh, you know through population control, uh, human breeding uh, to pr- to produce uh, a, 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 a master or super race. And uh, and uh, I, 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 I agree with all the points Haki made. Prior uh, prior to the European Renaissance, there was no such thing as race. That concept was developed in order to justify the exploitation of Africa, and also the uh the indigenous lands of the western hemisphere primarily 
and uh, and uh, and uh, and actually, uh, eugenics was used to rewrite history. And uh, they did, and uh, they did this in various ways. One was they, uh, ones the Africans in the diaspora were denied the ability to use their own language. And this is critical because uh, because without the ability to use your own language, you cannot tr- uh, transmit your culture and history from one generation to the next. So that was uh, so that was uh, that was prior to the uh, to the Reconstruction period inside the U.S. But I wanted to uh, that 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 those were factors that contributed to the ability of the uh, bourgeoisie to rewrite history. And it was eugenicists uh, uh, among the European bourgeoisie that carried out this rewrite of history. And also they they damaged um, the damage through war and uh and various incidents uh the institutions that existed and they and thereby replaced the library materials with materials of their own creation and uh like a, there were no another a number of points raised in the documentary but I'll try to be be as brief as possible is that uh is that this uh through the destruction and replacement of various institutions and also the denial of uh the uh indigenous people and Africans of access to education generally they were able to rewrite our history uh to frame it so that uh uh so 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 the thing about it though those of us who who know have an obligation to teach the truth especially to our youth and uh this becomes uh very important but be, but 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 that's how they were able to do it and uh now uh so now uh Presently, we go to institutions that are controlled uh, by these philanthropists and, uh, 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 and uh, you know, uh, and, and other Europeans that don't, that don't know the truth of our history. And, uh, and that's how it was done. It was, it was a long process. And it involved several steps, uh, but one was the destruction of what existed and replacing it uh, through warfare and also through uh, through uh, terrorism, which we have been subject to since we uh, since we were brought from Africa to the Western Hemisphere. Thank you, brother. Anthony, brother Moses, your response to this documentary. Share with us some of your teachable moments that you got from this documentary, Brother Moses. Eugenics is part of the uh, part of the white supremacist 
mode of production uh, mentality uh, tends to create a master race, more or less. Uh, people who who are considered to be uh, superior having the traits of of uh, German and uh, German in particular uh, as Hitler when he got hold of it. Uh, but uh, it's a it's apartheid system. It's, it's racist. It's sexist. Uh, it's fascism, and we we denounce it. Uh, it has no place in in society uh, among civilized people. We should be we should be uh, judging people by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin. Uh, pigmentation has no significant meaning in terms of uh, people's behavior and, and their psychological makeup. Uh, it's, it's, it's a political movement, uh, racism and race, the whole division of people into racial categories and stereotypes uh, is a political movement and, and we must uh, see it for what it's worth. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses and Sister Eleanor. Share your teachable moments of what you got from this documentary, How Eugenics Erased African History. Sister Eleanor. Well, thank you, um, Brother African, listening audience. Eugenics laid the foundation for uh, uh, racial hegemony, uh, European racial hegemony, and that um uh Germans, uh Scandinavians and others uh began to pick up this idea that they were racially superior. You saw that in the United States funding came from the industrialists, the Rockefellers and numerous other people. And you saw a new image, for example pop up, uh, the 20th century image, the 1920s image of Jesus, where he looked more like a a Viking rather than a Palestinian, rather than a brown or black man. And you saw the burning of libraries, especially Eastern European libraries, where you still can see the black Madonna and the black Christ. But uh, this was a manipulation of data and history. And with the destroying of uh, libraries, and it began to be acceptable with the burning of the archives in the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C. And then you saw Carnegie begin to appear to be an extremely benevolent person um, in that he began to build the first libraries that allowed African people in the United States to uh, uh, visit. And we've had so many names uh, other than who we are as Africans. They called us Negroes. They called us everything but who we are, Africans. And um, 
you also saw him contributing to the building of libraries in Ireland and other places. So this was the U.S. Um, in the 19th and early 20th century laying the foundation for this uh, uh, this term. And late, later they changed it to genetics. And we saw the white glove genocide, as the article called it, with the sterilization of prisoners, with the sterilization of the poor, with the sterilization of orphans, and with people, even with MS, muscular dystrophy, and other, even alcoholics. And there were three panel, at one point there were a three panel uh, group of men that would determine which men, women, and children went through these processes. So this laid the early 19th century foundation for um, genetic manipulation. Now, we already knew that during slavery, um, Thomas Jefferson, George Mason, numerous others had, uh, George Mason had several children by Phoebe. That's the reason for the literary ma uh, magazine at George Mason University, carrying the name Phoebe to honor the mother of his, so many of his children. Thomas Jefferson had five children by a child named Sally Henson um, when he was finished with the child and two of her daughters, his daughters, he sold them what they called downriver, which meant to New, New Orleans when the import of slaves had been prohibited in the United States. And then we saw the onset of Jim Crow and lynching. And we've learned about King Carter. He was the largest slaveholder in the United States and he was a slaveholder in Virginia, and he had been granted tens of thousands of acres of land by King George. So he had numerous um, people managing these individual plantations. And finally, when his grandson inherited his grandfather and father's estate, he found himself in a position of owning his brothers and sisters. And as he wrote in his diaries, which were not destroyed, that his brothers and sisters that were slaves resembled his brothers in particular, resembled his father and grandfather more than he did. So uh, he set up a plan to release all of the thousands of slaves held by King Carter. And the interesting thing about King Carter is none of the 
slaves ever took the name Carter, C-A-R-T-E-R. They left that behind. And in the state of Virginia, in order to be a free man, you had to be a person with a skill. You couldn't be a common laborer. So since this man was freeing so many of his relatives, his sisters and his brothers, he made sure they were blacksmiths carpenters. And remember, during slavery, so many uh, Africans were imported from Benin, for example. And as you know, the uh, Smithsonian just made arrangements to return the Benin sculptures back to the Benin people. That was questionable. They didn't want them going back to Nigeria because they felt because of colonialism and Today's Nigeria, they wouldn't be safe, nor did they have the museums and the historians living in Nigeria to maintain them. These skilled curators and historians live in the United States and in the Netherlands, where the Benin sculptures have been housed for many, many years. So um, these, this this whole philosophy laid the foundation for what we saw Hitler, Mussolini, and others do, the, the annihilation and the manipulation of, of the human race and the attempt to annihilate those whom they did not like. Um, one moment, please. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Uh, panelists, uh, Brother Haki, I'm going to make a couple of points that I um, noticed about this documentary in terms of speaking to the issue of how they was able to rewrite history and the processes, the techniques that they use. And I'd just like for you maybe elaborate a little bit on it based upon your liking. And I would like to just talk about, number one, from my understanding, the history of eugenics and the history of apartheid. Those were philosophies and concepts that came actually from America and went to Europe and went to South Africa, you know. So America has uh, a very good, does a very good job of projecting things on other people for what they do, and they have behind that projection. But that's point number one. Also for point number two, when you talk about eugenics, and this, project, this process of eugenics, there also is a process of talking about discriminating and getting rid of people who didn't look or fit a certain phenotype characteristics. Not only were they not geared toward excluding and eliminating African people, but also their own kind, based on class. Poor whites, or as they say, aboriginals, or, or, or hillbillies, and people who had certain so-called mental uh, shortcomings, these small set of Europeans wanted to and continue to find methods to try to eliminate these people. So when we say eugenics, I don't think we should be in the mindset to think they were only just trying to annihilate people of people African and African descent. But also in terms of this question, eugenics, I thought we were interested in terms of the techniques uh, they use. They're talking about some different methods of how they use accidents. Maybe something like just got caught on fire you with by accident, and then some things were burned intentionally. Libraries and places were burned intentional. Also, they use the tactics of walls. When they go to wall, they target certain institutions, buildings, and cities, 
parents that destroyed these things, they come back rebuild and replace them. And this is something that they have done in the past and something they're doing today. For example, when we talk about the so-called Middle East and the wars that have been taking place in Syria and Pakistan, Iraq, Iran, the West, led by the U.S. imperialism and Israel occupation, they are intentionally destroying the historical sites. And then come back with these foundations, such as the Congolese Foundation or Rockefeller Foundation, and replace these things in their own lack in the image. So, you know, I think that we need to understand this is how the game is being played. Your response, Brother Haki. <clears throat> Excuse me, Brother Africa. Yeah. Okay, Brother Africa. You know, one of the things that's you're absolutely correct. Uh, you know, when we talk about the role of eugenics, the U.S. played a, fundam- a, a very big part in terms of dissemination of such ideas in terms of justifying eugenics. And, of course, you're right. So Hitler learned firsthand from the United States. Uh, apartheid, of course, they learned from the United States. Uh, so U.S. is key in terms of dissemination, disseminating certain ideas, certain horrendous ideas with respect, you know, who should live and who should die. And so we shouldn't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't diminish that. But in saying that, Brother Africa, I think one thing I have to point out real quickly, this is sort of off the point, but I have to raise this because it's, it's important. When we talk about the origin of, 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 human, of, of human beings in Europe, uh, keep in mind that it's been traced directly to the Grimaldi people out of the southern region of Africa. So when you think about, in fact, that these Europeans are so, I mean, uh, uh, who are so uh, uninformed when it comes to their origin, I mean, it's unfortunate. But it's certainly one of the things they need to do is go back and research the Grimaldi, Grimaldi people. So often we talk about, you know, the, the role of the uh, the role of the uh, Moors in terms of European society, in terms of shaping new societies. But we don't talk about the, the, the origin in terms of Europe itself, in terms of the Grimaldi people immigrating to Europe to establish what essentially became Europe. We need to talk about that. That's, that's key. But back to your point, Brother Africa. Also, just in terms of eugenics, you know, in terms of methods they employ in terms of, you know, uh, rationalizing or, 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 or legitimizing uh, eugenics, also, right, it has the role of information is key. Uh, one of the things that when we talk about the, the creation of libraries, often, and Sister Eleanor alluded to this, often we talk about libraries, we see them as a good thing. And, of course, they are because they give you the opportunity to enlighten your mind. I mean, you can read. I mean, it's, it's a good thing. But the rationale behind it, as far as the, the, the early capitalists like Carnegie and Mellon and these guys were concerned, was to create libraries for the sole purpose of making sure only certain information were in those libraries. Those informations were geared toward the rationalization or the justification for things like eugenics. And this is important that we understand this in terms, in terms of libraries. Even today, certain libraries, particularly in the southern region of the, of the U.S., won't entertain certain books or certain topics. And that's aside from the hysteria that's currently taking place where these right-wing Republicans are destroying history across the board because they're adamant in order for them to maintain longevity. In order for the racial superiority to continue to exist, they must destroy information, and they're doing a masterful job at destroying information. So my, my, so my only concern is that African people understand, or people of goodwill across the board understand, that all the information that's being des- des- destroyed, to the extent that you have access to information, please guard it, you know, guard it like you're guarding your life. Because this stuff is important. This stuff must be conveyed to the future generations of, of, of people in terms of the reality, in terms of our existence in the society. Also, Brother Africa, I think when you're right, when you talk about eugenics, it's important that we not racialize this whole question in terms of racialize. I hate that term. I hate that anything to do with race. But anyway, 
this this term in terms this term in terms of eugenics, we we we, we have to understand that it's much broader than its intended its intended purposes. Even though it might have started out in terms of you know um, you know creating a a master race, uh, it eventually evolved into a point where not only you know the desire to eliminate African people based upon things as nefarious as their skin color, but also also to eliminate those white folks who were not blonde and blue hair. Uh, the quintessential uh, white person, the person of, of standing, the person of, of character, person of intelligence, was a white person who had blonde and blue eyes. That was a definition in terms of eugenics. So those, so those people who happened to be white, who didn't have blonde hair, blue eyes, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't viewed favorably by those positions of power. And gradually, they come a situation where not only if they didn't have blonde and blue eyes, they were subject to be to be uh, euthanized. Also, because as well, if you if you if you if you have a mental disability, uh, if you have a physical disability, uh, if you if you're too short, uh, all these kind of things to come justification in terms of euthanizing people based upon uh, a litany of of of, 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 of these fo- these nefarious these phony uh, uh, positions in terms of one's medical medical status to determine whether or not they live or die. Uh, so clearly that was very, very problematic. But lastly, Brother Africa, I think when you talk about the fact that, you know, wars in terms of carrying out eugenics, the, the, the importance in terms of wars and propaganda and destruction of companies, uh, countries, that is, that is important. Uh, one of the things, and we talk about, for instance, if you talk about, if you talk about the Iraq, it wasn't simply a question in terms of destroying Iraq, but also a question in terms of rebuilding re- Iraq. Now, so when you rebuild, when, when you rebuild uh, a place like Iraq, the question becomes, what's going to take its place? Those things that take its place are not going to be in the interest of the Iraqi people, and that is important. So they got the opportunity to justify, you know, your eugenic impulse and to create in the minds of Iraqi people the, the suitability of people based upon any number of frivolous uh, characterizations. Uh, so clearly we understand that that is part and parcel in terms of war. And so we talk about specifically when we talk about, you know, wars being waged in Africa and they're killing all progressive or revolutionary leadership. They're making a statement, and essentially what they're saying is that because they view this, 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 this trait of intelligence as unique uh, among African people, that they feel they're worthy of destroying them because they don't think that intelligence can manifest itself among the African population. It only manifests itself among African leaders, and so therefore if you kill all the African leaders, then you, know, you, can, uh, you can control the country. That is your thinking, and that is, that is, that is part and parcel in terms of how you, eugenics think. Uh, this notion that in fact that, that, that intelligence is a, somehow quote unquote a trait based upon skin color, uh, and that for and that for those people who happen not to be to be non-white who exhibited intelligence, there must be a typical uh, in the, the notion that if you just kill them, that the masses of people have no intelligence, so they'll be lost without some in, some intelligence manifested by uh, the few you know in in African leadership. Uh, so clearly that's all part in terms of how eugenics think. And finally, Brother Africa, I think, you know, when we talk about the destruction of, of countries and, 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 you know, when we talk about, you know, when I think about Afghanistan in terms of the destruction of their wealth after 20 years of destroying those people, destroying their infrastructure, they have the audacity to actually hold the people money, won't give the people their money so they can rebuild. Well, the stipulation is in order for them to rebuild, they insist that the United States government do the rebuilding. Well, is that because of the because they're uh, benevolent or they really care about the, the, the Afghan people? Or is there other motivations in terms of doing that? 
Uh, clearly, the motivations have less to do in terms of helping Iraq and people have more to do with reinforcing certain mindsets, certain stereotypes in terms of what it is to be a legitimate Iraqi. And so in that context, so we're talking about, in fact, you know, justifying in the minds of Afghanistan, Af- Afghans, the notion that some people are fit while others are not. So clearly that fits into the mold in terms of eugenics, and this is what we fundamentally have to understand. And if we're not conscientious in terms of this propensity that manifests itself on a daily basis in terms of the treatment of African people, then we become victims of a process in which, you know, it's very, very destructive, and I close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. And Brother Anthony, if you can just expand upon, I just will make this observation from this documentary, How Eugenics Erased African History. Sometimes capitalism have you reading the truth as still saying untruthful things. For example, documentary we're talking about the type of people who was giving a certain uh, perception of how they look or who they were. In reality, it was totally the opposite. For one example, they talk about this character called Daniel Wester, who, based on my understanding, that what the so-called Western Dictionary was based or named after. But he documented and talked about this was really a, a, a African person. They were not European. And how even in reading the text and description of how you look, uh, later on, the Europeans came in and they totally drew a different face and a different perception. So I just want you to just talk a little bit about this whole question of deceptions and the tools they use for deceptions. One of the tools they use for deceptions is they create an educational system, such as the Ivy League schools, played a real key role of creating this international world um, phenomenon of disinformation or misinformation when it comes to history. This whole question of foundations, uh, whether a Rockefeller Foundation or a Dave Report or, or you know, you name it, the Raptor Foundations, all of them had a systematic way looking at it from a global perspective of, of creating different institutions of um, of creating what we think is the truth today is not. So your response, Brother Anthony? Yes. Um Institutions such as the Rockefeller Foundation, Carnegie Corporation, they they finance they they use their philanthropy to gain control of these educational institutions and libraries, and also and also in the process, uh, and also another part of that process was the images that you alluded to, like of uh, for Daniel Webster, for example, they took pictures and doctored them. And uh, see, so, uh, see so, some people think that that was impossible during the 19th century. Actually, it was. And, uh, and, uh, uh, they've been doctoring photographs for, uh, uh, for for nearly 200 years, and uh, ever since photography was invented, they uh, so 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 that the, the, there are ways of uh, of uh, changing images. 
And I think that's something that people uh, have to understand. And that's another takeaway I got from this documentary. Uh, and also, uh, by, by controlling the funding for these institutions, like the libraries and uh, colleges, universities, museums, you control uh, – uh, they can control the content of what's uh, of what's available in these institutions. So uh, during do, the during the, the, uh, the eugenicist movement, you had the, you had all of these students going to these colleges and universities and libraries and getting fed this information. That is another way in which our history was uh, rewritten. Uh, by, uh, by uh, you know, uh, uh, it, it, it was a combination of methods. But the key thing was, it was, uh, it, it was distorting the truth. And also, and also uh, inculcating the ideas of the bourgeoisie, so that people would think like the bourgeoisie, even though they're not part of it. And uh, that's why this, there's so many sections of the working class that work against their interests to this day. Uh- Thank you, Brother Anthony. And Sister Eleanor, one of the lessons that I learned from this documentary was they used the term scientific racism. Scientific racism. You know, a lot of times when we say we should go to the original source, uh, we even need something to question that because the question will come, is this is really the original source? Understanding the, the history the eugenics has played in the past. Also, they talk about such, such concepts as black Europeans. What do you mean by black Europeans? What do you mean by that was Africans who were rulers of Europe and the U.S.? Where has this history disappeared to? Your response, Sister Eleanor. Eugenics, the, um, the purpose of eugenics was to annihilate such history. Now, as Brother Haiki had said, we often talk about the Moors and their 500-year occupation of Europe. And keep in mind, they weren't run out of Europe. They chose to leave Europe, but had an incredible impact on European culture. What we call the Mediterranean diet, for example, the healthy eating of the Southern Europeans is a contribution uh, of the Moors to Europe, what we call uh, Moorish architecture with the uh, tile roofs and the gardens and this kind of housing that promotes health is Moorish architecture. But I think what uh, Brother Anthony just said about... uh, this whole phenomena. In the 19th century, they began to doctor um, photographs. And yes, Webster was a tall, dark, and handsome person. Uh, 
uh, Eleanor of Acetane uh, of France was an African woman, I understand. Um, and there, as I said earlier, the Eastern European libraries, you know, the Eastern European Empire was a part of the Ottoman Empire and the Austrian Empire. And uh, they recognized African influence as he with the uh, Madonna in the Christian imagery of uh, Christ and his mother, Mary. Uh, Palestinians are not Europeans. So um, as Anthony said, they begin to doctor photographs well in the at since the inception of photography and the glass prints, they've been manipulating uh, photography and degrading the appearance of certain people to foster this uh, cultural genocide. And at one point, you know, uh, the one thing they mentioned about in the documentary was white and race was a status because there was a period where certain whites were not uh, seen as acceptable, the Irish and different groups of whites. They also mentioned something about Geronimo. Originally, the U.S. penny, copper penny, was supposed to have the image of Geronimo. Well, Geronimo was captured and lived in the District of Columbia in his TP on Capitol Hill as a as an imprisoned person for the rest of his life once he was captured. And uh, a gentleman working at the U.S. Mint who was responsible for uh, creating the the U.S. penny. Uh, had his daughter one day, she happened to put on Geronimo's uh, headdress, that of a chief with the eagle feathers and everything. And the father quickly drew her, and her image became that of Geronimo on the penny. So we see all types of misinformation. And yes, European, uh, Europe, Africans have been in Europe and European leaders, and it is imperative that we understand that because this whole, and would you pronounce the word uh, cybergenics? Uh, what, would you please uh, say the word for me, Brother Africa? Uh, um but anyway, the, word the whole concept, the whole concept eugenics, of this, eugenics, eugenics, the whole concept of eugenics was with the intent uh, of annihilating everyone, the Romas, the Africans, the Jews, everyone from European history, except for the Germans and the Northern Europeans. Now, this did not include the Russians and the 
Latvians and those people, but it did include uh, the Lithuanians and and the blonde, blue-eyed type. Um, And uh, it had very little to do with intellect. It had very little to do with education. It had very little to do with any of these things. It was just a matter of human greed and superiority and uh, wealth and the burning of libraries. Look at what happened in Iraq. I just want to bring up Iraq. When the U.S. invaded Iraq and Baghdad, it invaded a major city. The museums were plundered. The libraries were plundered. The banks were plundered. The government buildings were plundered. We don't know to this day what happened to the and the art treasures from Iraq and the U.S. war that George W. Bush initiated in his search for weapons of mass destruction. We do know and had read in articles that these rare artifacts were on the market from time to time for sale or had come up for auction. No one knew where they came from. But we saw the destruction of history in that way. And with the Dead Sea Scrolls and them being in possession of the Israeli government and uh, the Catholic Church and having the rest of the world having limited access to these documents. So information is very important. The destruction of libraries, the destruction of archives, the destruction of towns was very important. And you saw how in the article they talked about Woodrow Wilson. And uh, they talked about uh, uh, President Taft, President Woodrow Wilson and how they participated in the eugenics and on a state level and a year later signing legislation Wilson goes into the White House and we know his second wife Edith was a staunch racist and in the District of Columbia between Florida Avenue and Euclid Street between 16th And 15th Street, there was a uh, black township, and she, through eminent domain, had her husband um, move all the people. And originally, they talked about it as a black township, but as time has gone on in just the last 20 years, a woman named Maura Chikowsky who has the contract in the district, it's gone from being a township to being a shanty town. And you hear even Africans um, uh, talking about, yeah, this used to be a shanty. And in effect, what it was, was an African-American, or as we say, an African community. And that did not necessarily mean a shanty because African communities were completely contained 
So American Indians, Africans, some whites all lived in with those communities, and it wasn't limited by class. It was limited by segregation. So you had the rich and the poor all living in the same township. Now, with temptation, you see that may be changing, but these libraries and the destruction and the strange fires that have occurred, um, I don't think that they were uh, accidental. I think that uh, they were vandalism. And you saw that in the article, in the documentary, Stanford University was taken over by one of these very people from its inception. So you can imagine the type of propaganda it was promoting and the misinformation that students were learning. And they talked about how the SAT uh, derived from uh, this very kind of information and how certain people automatically failed, such as the people in Appalachia, because they weren't reading the New Yorker or Vanity Fair or the Washington Post or the New York or they Times. Come from a different, or they come from a different class background environment with tests are suited to. Excellent point, Sister Right, they're from a different um, class and cultural environment. They were experts in farming and experts in animal um, animal husbandry, experts in understanding the forests and conservation. But these tests did not ask questions on those subjects, on soil conservation on how to control the water and prevent flooding, where to build a house or build homes so that you weren't in an area where you would be subject to flooding and required dams and levees. So let me stop you right here and let's bring your brother Moses, let him get some final say as relates to this article, how, Eugenics, Erase African History. Are there any additional remarks, Brother Moses, you'd like to share with the listening audience? Well, I, I think we've done a pretty good job of covering it, the highlights of it. Um, certainly, you know, like um, burning libraries and trying to rewrite history uh, is a problem, and, and, and we recognize that. And, and obviously, there was a deliberate attempt. Uh, the Nazis deliberately tried to rewrite history. Uh, we know that it, it, there are people who who have, have that evil intent. We just have to recognize evil exists in the world. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And closing out this particular subject of things tonight in this article, I would just ask Haki and Anthony if y'all could somewhat speak to this. Um, so what? It went two minutes or so, and this issue is this issue of this concept. You know, they said sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt hurt you. 
They may not hurt you, but a lot of times they kill you. For example, what do they mean and how they use the term scientific racism? They use the word scientific racism. And looking at the history of eugenics and how it has been used, has been used again most recently as it relates to this whole creation of the coronavirus and how that was used and supposed to be scientific in this process of makeup. Brother Haki, then Brother Anthony, your response. Scientific racism, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things is that, you know, we, we have to understand, you know, right, you know right, right at the top, is that when you, when, when you talk about science, science is something that can be demonstrated over and over again that's consistent. Uh, often what happens is that we have situation in, in, specifically in the medical field or the scientific field, which is really speculation. It's all theory. It's not based upon science. In other words, uh, there's nothing that indicates that this particular phenomenon occurs over and over and over again. Uh, but yet it's given the term scientific. So by labeling scientific, it has some authentic- authenticity. Uh, so clearly, you know, so when we talk about scientific racism and we talk about particularly in, in, as it relates to the cure for first diseases, there's this perception that, in fact, that, uh, you know, based upon, you know, our, our, our phenotype, what we physically look like, determines in terms of how we respond to diseases and so forth and so on. Uh, one of the real ironies in the society is that, you know, disproportionately, African women continue to die giving birth to children. And the question ever becomes, so what is the problem? Why isn't that white women dying at the same proportion? Why isn't that, that, why isn't that Asian women dying at the same proportion as African women? So what is going on here? Well, a lot of that is, a lot of that is tied up in scientific racism, in which they, the position is that, well, somehow African women bodies are somehow unique or different. Uh, if, in fact, if that's the case, then you need to demonstrate scientifically how that is true. And if that's true, what can you do in terms of remedying that perceived difference? Uh, so clearly scientific racism is simply something they use to conceal the fact that what they're saying has no scientific basis at all. It merely exists because those positions of power say so, and it's that simple. And could this recent phenomenon dealing with this virus, this recent virus episode could have been another version of what they have done to the past to people, the coronavirus? It could, it could be. I mean, that, that is the problem. I mean, one of the things is that the, the circumstances under COVID-19 were very, very suspicious. But the mere fact to the extent that it had the kind of overall impact that it was projected to have never materialized. But what it did do, you know, uh, in terms of proportionally, it did proportionally impact African people. That is very, very interesting. But when you look at people generally in terms of numbers who are negatively impacted by the COVID-19 uh, 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 so-called uh, vaccination, uh, when you look at it in terms of the impact, the disparate impact in terms of the African population, then there's something fundamentally skewed here. Statistically, you would think in terms of those people negatively impacted by, you know, these, these COVID-19 vaccinations uh, in African community will be consistent with the overall numbers in terms of others in terms of who also consume that particular vaccination. But that didn't happen. So the question becomes, why, why did that happen? What was it about this particular virus? That was so uh, so devastating, so destructive to African lives as relative to other people. To what extent does scientific racism play a part in terms of innovating this virus, specifically understanding the African genotype in terms of using that uh, to innovate new viruses for the sole purpose in terms of debilitating 
or crippling of the 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 the, 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 the systems, you know, of African people in terms of who those who consume, you know, that that, that vaccination. Uh, so clearly, Brother Africa, I, I think that when we talk about this whole question of scientific racism, understand that this 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 concept is something that exists because because it, it does have it does have very nefarious. Uh, uh, um, uh, does have very nefarious kinds of uh, uh, um, um, possibilities, and because it has very nefarious kinds of possibilities, we've got to be concerned when these viruses come down the road. We got to do our research. We got to do our due diligence in terms of understanding as much as we possibly can in terms of not only the origin of this particular virus, but also the, the terms of its impact on the human body. And I close with that. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Brother Anthony, do take on how do you view and define this question of scientific racism? And as I read this or viewed the documentary, seeing like that was a replay of what they have done in the past, or using people to find ways to disseminate them. I just wondered whether this was a recent replay by the coronavirus uh, episode. Your speculation and response, Brother Anthony. Yes, um, I, uh, I I I think that's a good point you made, Brother Africa. That uh, that and uh, and the fact that uh, uh, you know someone uh, for uh, from someone who has an engineering background, just because someone says it's scientific doesn't that doesn't necessarily make it so. It becomes scientific if the results can be reproduced uh, by experimentation, observation, whatever. It has to be repeatable in order to be truly scientific. And uh, scientific, the term scientific racism is a cover for... uh, for pseudoscience, in other words, they use that uh, they, they they use scientific terminology to justify racism. That's all that is. And um, uh, let's see. And um, you know, and the thing about it, though, science, if it's not uh, understood, can be can be used to spread confusion and misinformation and that's something uh, uh, you know to be guarded against but that can only be guarded against through adequate education and uh, you know uh, you know whatever language you speak English Spanish whatever whatever language you speak it is important uh, to learn how to read and write well and uh and if you can do, and if you can do rewrite and do research you can learn anything and uh even as something as complicated as medicine and um you know and i think uh and i think the fact that people don't have adequate knowledge or education i think uh the ruling class takes advantage of that to uh, spread confusion you know, and misinformation. But, but you know what, Brother Anthony, and listen to the point you just made, 
I think we need to be careful with their, uh, their assessment. I think it's a question of power because you can read it right very well, but may not be in your enemy language. And because it's not in your enemy language, you know, you suffer for it, but it's not like we innately can't read it right. For example, I have no, no, um, I have no knowledge of, of the German language. So to say that, you know, because I have been in an environment and I've had to deal with that particular language because I can't speak it, that doesn't make you illiterate or someone who can't read or write. You understand what I'm saying? I, 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 you're, 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 you're correct. You, you, you just read and write in a different language. And, uh, and, and the thing, and that is, and, and, and that, and, uh, Africans, uh, often find themselves, especially in the diaspora in that situation. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's interesting to make that point, uh, cause one of the things they uh they did was uh uh what was when 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 we were taken into chattel when ancestors were 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 put into chattel slavery is they they broke families up or broke people in in the same ethnic group up so that they couldn't communicate In, the, in, in their particular language, and they were forced to learn the European language, Spanish, English, French, whatever. But, uh, you know, but that does not, but you're, you're correct, that does not necessarily mean that they were not, uh, they could not read and write, they just could not read and write in uh, Spanish or English or whatever language, but they could read and write and say uh, Wolof or Yoruba. Yeah, we just have to be careful of continuing accepting the enemy narratives when it comes to us. But anyway, panelists, job well done. This is a um, perspective and a tribute and a thank you for the brother who has done an excellent documentary on how eugenics erase African history. We encourage you to check this out on YouTube at this point in time. We can take a representative cultural break, and we'll close our program out with our panelists' final thoughts for today's program. You listen to Brother Africa, and like always, we may not give you what you want, but we do our best to give you what you need. We'll be right back. You're listening to Africa on the Moon.
If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine. Needs, our needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs Palestine, Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs, our love. needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. That's right. Palestine needs our freedom, needs our love. And we're going to share a little love with our brothers and sisters from Palestine, the Palestinian people. We'd like to make a brief announcement that the American Muslims for Palestine want you to join them in the coalition of partners in commemoration of the Enochpac Day. 75 years, this event will take place on the 14th of May in Washington, D.C. at the Washington Monument. For more information, we can you can contact them at 703 534 3032. 703 534 3032. Come on out there and show support for your brothers and sisters of Palestine. So at this point in time, you listen to Africa on the Moon, and we're going to make our closing remarks. Our theme today was how eugenics erased African history. It's the 30th of April, 2023. 
So we're going back to our political panelist analysts for the day. They give us our final thoughts. We start with Brother Moses. Your final thoughts, Brother Moses? The mic is yours. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. Um, it's been a very enlightening show. Um, I think, you know, this concept of eugenics and scientific racism, et cetera, et cetera, it's all part of the, the uh, white superiority, uh, fascist system of thought and ideology, uh, and we must fight it uh, on every and every manifestation. Uh, we we live in a racist country. Uh, um, racism is predominant. Apartheid is 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 alive in the well in the U.S. of A. Uh, um, and we must fight fight this apartheid system. Uh, must unite with our uh, freedom-loving friends of all races and and struggles to overcome this system. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, for your contribution to today's program. And we now we'll move to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, your final thoughts for today's program. Well, thank you so much for allowing me to participate on this show. But with eugenics, um, it was so effective in the United States that in order to understand anything about African studies in the America and the impact Africans have had on the Americas, you had to go to Central and South America to study. Moreover, Spaniards did something very important. Uh, the Moors did something even greater. They left libraries in Spain that talked about Africa, African studies, and European and world history. So I know a woman named Dolores Anderson, born in Richmond, Virginia, in Fulton, as a matter of fact, who when she wanted to get her doctorate in uh, African women's studies, she had to go to Spain, had to not only speak Spanish, but learn to read and write Arabic to be able to understand and realize the role that African women had played in the Americas as well as Europe and the world. So um, the eugenics was very effective in annihilating the history of Africans in America and became uh, a prototype for alleged uh, and I say alleged European intellectuals, because you see these positions were given to P, uh, the first president of Stanford was uh, a student of eugenics. So this was not by accident. And uh, we understand uh, even more how African history was destroyed in America and around the world by eugenics and the history of numerous other people. Uh, and we've seen how photography was manipulated in the 19th century to create um, horrid pictures of persons suggesting that this was uh, what your offspring would look like if you were to marry 
uh, one of these people from this group or this family and how the SAT and other testing systems that were adopted from eugenics have had a derogatory impact on uh, all persons living in the United States. And you also see how the civil rights movement, by only mentioning the the ex-enslaved people in two areas, and that's affirmative action and voting, has allowed for millions of people to come to this country and claim to be minorities and take advantage of uh, educational opportunities and able to study popular culture to be able to advance on SAT scores and other things like that. And it's changed the complexion of America. It may have backfired. And now you see a whole new emergence of brown people that are now calling themselves, or I call them black people, but they call themselves white people from Asia and Central and South America. So the struggle against racism continues. And now we know the foundation started right here in the United States of America. Thank you so much for such a wonderful and educational uh, show and uh, sharing such fantastic research with me and uh, to the other analysts. Thank you so much, everyone, and have a blessed week. I'm speaking to you this evening from Sibley Memorial Hospital in Washington, D.C. Hopefully I'll be speaking to you from my home next week. Sister Alnor, we thank you for your contribution to today's program. We wish you a speedy recovery and um, your trooper. You're going to be all right. Hang in there, sister. We love you. Hey, um, panelists, you know, one of the things I'm just thanking before we go to our final thoughts with Brother Haki Anthony. Damn, I'm just thanking all these walls and confusion they created in Africa. Can you imagine the looting and destruction that uh, the U.S. forces and Western nations are doing in Africa, in Haiti, countries where you have a large African population, Colombia? Can you imagine what's going on right now with African and any damn near nation just while in Africa? Hmm. Brother Hockey, talk to me. Your final thought. Yeah, my, my, my final thoughts is first, uh, just wish your sister Eleanor, you know, a speedy recovery. Uh, we depend on her to come on every Sunday uh, to have these discussions. Uh, she's a hot and sold of Africa on the move. Listen, um, let me just try to be very brief, but very candid at the same time. I think one of the things we understand is that, you know, capitalism is in decline. Not only is it in decline, white supremacy is in decline. Those people who benefit from white supremacy, the ruling class in American society, have no desire to give it up easily. In that context, they're willing to do anything in terms of preserving white supremacy. 
for African people, we have to understand the nature of the beast. Uh, we can no longer be pragmatic. We have to understand the nature of the threat that is imposed upon us. When we look at them systematically, you know, destroying, you know, any any semblance of African history, when we watch them systematically destroy, you know, um, uh, the, the right, you know, to affordable, affordable housing in the society. When we look at them in terms of systematically incarcerating uh, African African people for the most trivial charges for long periods of time. When we see all this stuff, we, we have to come to some realization at some point that the inevitability that is going to happen to you or your loved ones raises significantly in the context of decline of the capitalist system. We must, we need, we need those institutions, we need those organizations to prepare our people for the, the eventuality of any kind of repercussions as a result of white supremacy uh, desire to maintain control and power at all costs. If we don't do anything in terms of you know, preparing ourselves for the inevitability, we cannot blame anybody. You know, we talk a lot about racism on the society in this, in this, in this, uh, in this, on this program. We talk about the systematic nature of racism. We talk about the people who perpetuate racism. Uh, we talk about the impact of racism. We do all of that, and that's good. But the bottom line is unless our people understand the implicit threat, not, Im- not implicit threat, but the explicit threat in terms of the decline of capitalism, then, you know, we're not in a strategic position to, 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 to resist anything. And that is unfortunate. We have children. If we're really concerned about the future legacy of African people, particularly the legacy of our ancestors who fought and died in society, not only to create and to build a society, uh, but who fought against all odds in terms of maintaining their families. And thinking thinking about all those things, then we have a moral obligation to make sure that the generation behind us also survives. They cannot survive if we don't create the proper conditions to ensure their survival. Understand me clearly. This is, a, this is a challenge. We have a work cut out for us. As I alluded to before, there's tremendous obstacles standing in the way in terms of our, our unity. We got the religion. We got the culture. We got the class. We had all of these issues that makes it that much more difficult in terms of forging unity among our people. But despite all of that, we have no other recourse but to forge unity among those of us who fundamentally understand what's at stake here. We got a work cut out for us. And as always, Brother Africa, I encourage people, you know, to unravel the matrix. Because without some understanding in terms of this insanity, systematic insanity, uh, then we do ourselves a real disservice in terms of looking the other way. We have to address it head on and understand the the, the, the serious nature of the challenges that we that we have to confront. And having said that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. Thank you, Brother Haki, and thank you for your contribution to today's program. And now we come to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for today's program. Yes. Uh, first of all, I want to wish uh, Sister Eleanor a speedy recovery. And, um, you know, on that note, I uh, want to, um, you know, her, her, her contributions to this program are invaluable. Um, I want to uh, 
announce uh, once again that uh, that the All African People's Revolutionary Party GC is organizing African Liberation Day, Palestine Day, 2023. A series of activities from May 1st through May, 3rd, uh, May 25th, 2023. Our theme this year is Pan-Africanism, Asian class struggle in Africa and the diaspora fighting for one unified socialist Africa. And uh, people can find out more information about our programming by checking our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. And uh, let's see, and I encourage everybody uh, that is not in an organization to join an organization uh, that is working for our people's liberation because that is the only way we'll get our freedom. And thank you for having me. We thank you, Anthony, for your participation and your contribution as well to today's program. We'd like to thank our listening audience for allowing us to come to their homes this evening where we can speak truth to the powerful and powerless. And we just would really like to remind everyone to come and help us build this program by sharing this program with your networks and your friends. And if you'd like to have a link to this program, feel free to email us at africaonthemove2 at gmail.com. Until next time, just always remember to go forward with our backwards novel. And Pan-Africanism is the key. It will set all Africans free. So as your host, Brother Africa, we're going to leave you with some sounds of sweet liberation, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Africa on the Move. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, to last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. Must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there where our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey. Yeah. 
and made it through my journey. Yeah, 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 yeah. Made it through my journey. Made it through my journey. Hellerino. A bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia. A scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. Light is clear. Oh, how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey. Yeah, and made it through my journey. Yeah, 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 yeah.
Clarendon And if you come from Portland And if you come from Westmoreland You're an African So don't care where you come from As long as you're a black man You're an African No mind your nationality I've got the identity of an African Cause if you come from Trinidad And if you come from Nassau And if you come from Cuba You are an African So don't you where you come from As long as you're a black man You're an African harmony. The earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity. Human beings, human love, on a spiritual tip. So vast, so great. 
the African embrace. Live beyond, love beyond your skin to where you belong. Pick it up no more. 
let a crip walk, crip this walk. is real talk Smoke push, ambush, then we peel off Niggas still rootin' with the wheels off Always looking out for the crisscross I'm a bigger boss than Rick Ross Always winning, nigga get lost It's the warlord, bring the voodoo When I bail through, it's crazy like Bellevue What they tell you, leave that boy alone Like home alone, fuck a skull and bone Arrest the president, you got the evidence That nigga is Russian intelligence When it rains, it pours Did you know the new pipe was orange? Boy, you're showing your horns They trying to replace my halo with thorns You so basic with your bait sticks Let's go ape shit in the matrix Arrest the president Arrest the president Arrest the president You got the evidence Arrest the president Arrest the president Arrest the president You got the evidence I took back my eyes And all black tonight That's right, some niggas gotta sacrifice Not a criminal No I'm a seminal Yeah I was free once Now I'm clinical You so technical This was Mexico Now everywhere I go is owned by Mexico Fuck them. Fuck them and the rest Hell of you yeah. I turn a fool to a best hopper I'ma roll with the aliens Man, fuck these homo sapiens They don't really wanna make friends All they want is a Mercedes Benz All they want is they dividends And decibels Fuck these citizens They'll treat us like hooligans Throw him in, they don't care what school he in These people don't play fair It ain't even fair at the state fair Give a young nigga gray hair That's why I'm here Make your ass lay there You better stay there Close your fucking eyes like it's daycare Make myself clearer than Shakespeare I'm here to take money, even fake hair So desperate is what I'm left with For the record, you affected Who you elected, it's so septic So full of shit, I can't accept it Arrest the president, arrest the president Arrest the president, you got the evidence Arrest the president, arrest the president Arrest the president, you got the evidence Arrest the president, arrest the president Arrest the president, you got the evidence Arrest the president, arrest the president, arrest the president, you got the evidence. I resign.
second time today Everybody scatters And hopes it goes away How many kids they've murdered Only God can say
Viva, 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 viva,
My Asian friend, America, let me see in Africa. Hello, piano. Navalatino. Africa, we love in everybody. When you come to Africa, feel at home, nobody. No matter where you're from, go away, my friend. It's so wonderful. When you from me, Viva Africa. Take your body, I say scream and shout, life is too short, no matter where you come from, Africa is your home, scream and shout, come dance with me, take Africa. Yeah. Mama Africa. Africa. 